Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You rejoin us as we spend the third of our three days. I'm sure you're not surprised that we've taken three days to look at this monumental text of scripture we're often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. I do hope you find it helpful. Now, if you've just arrived here for the first time today, well, we're in season three, so why not consider going back either right to the beginning or at least to the start of season three as we work together through the Gospel of Matthew. And also, why not consider just hitting that subscribe button so you never miss another episode and you can make the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life. So anyway, with that said, you are most very welcome and do hang on at the end where I'll update you of a few things and tell you about a few links where you can connect to other teaching that is part of my overall ministry. Bye for now. Welcome back again. We're going to close off this section in Matthew chapter 6 verses 5 to 15 and we've been looking at this very famous passage which forms part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and the section we've been looking at for the last couple of days is what is often called the Lord's Prayer. So picking up where we left off last time, it seems that the whole idea of debt is looked upon as a sin. And the idea here seems to be that our sin is looked upon as in some way as creating a debt between individual people and God. So the idea is that debt is something that also needs to be clear. It needs to be redeemed. It needs to be forgiven. Now that's an interesting idea. I think sometimes people don't actually pray. They don't like to come before God because they're conscious of the sin in their hearts. They feel a sort of guilt about standing before God and asking for something when they know that they're in debt to him because of the problems and the things they've done in their life. And there is a sense in which that's true. But the other thing that's important to understand is, yes, that may be so, but God has made a provision for the clearance of that debt. The Apostle John, in the first of his three short letters, said this, If we confess our sins, he is thankful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So at least part of our prayer life should be about coming before the Lord and saying, You know, all right, I admit it, I've messed up. Please forgive me my debt of sin and help me have victory over it in the future. And that's what Jesus is in fact doing here. It's what he's telling us to do. He specifically tells us to do this in verse 12, where it says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now that does draw attention to the fact that there seem to be two conditions for receiving this kind of forgiveness from God. And one of those is confession, actually owning up and saying it. And the other is, have you forgiven other people as well? Now confession is an important part of this because in order to confess we simply need to reach a place to come to a point in our mind when we recognise that aspects of our behaviour is not what God would have wanted or expected from us. In a sense confession is just about agreeing with God 
and calling sin, sin, when it appears in our life. But the forsaking of our debt of sins is something that creates a problem in some people's mind, especially when compared and contrast with the idea of a debt of money. Does maybe that raise a problem in your mind? Well, if it asks that question in your mind, maybe it flags it up that way when it comes to the spiritual debt of sin. We are called to forgive others of their debt of sin. But I think I just need to pause at this point and point out that some translations say here, and deliver us from evil. So you see some translations say evil and some say evil one. Now it could be translated either way because it is about being protected from the attempts of the evil one to lead us astray as well as being protected from all moral evil in its entirety. But it is important to note that this saying does not mean that God leads us into temptation. Now I understand that this is a difficult phrase and frankly a lot of people have grappled with it over the years. But most Bible experts see this as a literary device. When you say something positive by using a negative understatement. That happens still today. But one helpful way I had it explained to me in a book I read was a man who said he overheard a couple of ladies talking in a restaurant and one was describing the young man that her daughter was going to marry. He'd just completed medical school, she said, and now he was starting at a prestigious job. She also said he comes from a good family and therefore she would be marrying not only a lovely young man, but she would also be marrying into some wealth and prestige. And the other woman listened to this and said, not too bad a guy then. Now, not too bad, when taken in isolation, sounds like a pretty negative statement. But we all know that what she meant was that the daughter had a good guy here, a good catch, if you like. And that's kind of what's going on here, in that something is being stated by using the understatement of a negative phrase that we can then recognise as being positive. The point is the Lord is going to protect us and the idea is that we are to pray that we are not led into sin. So don't get hung up on the word about the Lord leading us into sin. This part of the prayer is simply about us just recognising our weaknesses and understanding that if we're in the wrong situation we might be tempted to sin. So we're not praying not to be caught in those circumstances, we're actually praying not to get there in the first place. Here's the big point. Some people think that the prayer is going to deliver us from temptation, but they don't pray the prayer until the moment of temptation appears. And that's a different thing. This is not suggesting that you don't pray when temptations appear at that moment, but it's saying that's not the most powerful way to deal with this issue. The best way is if you pray beforehand. If you pray in this way beforehand, then you're much more likely to watch out for and be aware that temptation is appearing on the horizon. So pray before you even have to face the temptation. So before you begin the day, the Lord's Prayer is saying that you are to be kept from evil. Keep me from evil temptation and also from coming to temptation. That's the real spirit of the prayer being talked about here. Alright, so there are three things that we can pray for ourselves according to Jesus. You can pray for your provision, for your pardon and for your protection. I want you to know that these three things that we pray for are for ourselves. We are to pray for our 
provisions, and that is about praying as we are in the present. We are also told to pray for our pardon, our forgiveness, and that's about praying for things that have happened in the past. But we are also to pray for our protection, to pray that we're not led into temptation, and that's dealing with the future. So you see, the pattern of this prayer covers the whole of our life, the past, the present, and the future. It covers both the physical and the spiritual. It asks for our daily needs to be met and for our forgiveness for what we have done wrong. And it also asks to help us overcome the temptation so that we we don't do wrong things in the future. It covers everything in a person's life. And it means that by taking this on board, you can pray for all the areas of your life that you can and indeed should pray for. Now, Having reached this point where we're closing off the Lord's Prayer, there's something we need to say about Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Because in some versions of the Bible, it has this added addendum, a second half to the verse, where it says, it closes it off by saying, For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. Now that's actually the King James translation. And as you may, and you may have noticed, the phrase might be left out of your more modern translation. That's because some scholars have decided that one or two of the early manuscripts that they deem superior to others does not include that phrase. But the vast majority of all the manuscripts that have come down through the centuries, it was in fact there. But many still believe these words are not part of the text and they think that the passage should end halfway through verse 13 and it may do that in the translation that you have. But that means that Jesus closes this prayer with the words evil one. Now other people just can't imagine Jesus ending a prayer like that. The dispute on this addendum to the verse basically falls into three camps. Three groups of people For some, they ask the question, did he say it at all? For others, they're saying he didn't say it, but Matthew added it. And the third view is that it is added sometime later. Now, I grew up believing that that's how this prayer ends. It ends by saying, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And I'll tell you why I believe still that that is the correct ending to this verse, because it totally fits within the spirit of the verse. But just as an aside... I once on holiday read the autobiography of the Irish comedian Darrow Brain, well known in the UK here, maybe not so well known in the United States. Now, he came from a very religious Catholic background. He doesn't describe himself as a believer now, he's an atheist. But in his autobiography, he talks about when he married his wife Susan. Now, Susan was a surgeon a woman from a very well-educated Northern Ireland Protestant family. Now, that was quite unusual in itself, that someone from the Republic of Ireland, from a strongly nationalist background, would marry someone from a unionist background. But they decided to have a church wedding in England where they lived, in a Church of England church, and both sides of the family were invited. And as is the pattern here, not sure if it is worldwide, when people arrive at the church for a wedding, They're asked by the stewards whether they're from the the bride's side or the family's and the whole congregation are sat on either side of the church. And he talks about at the point where the wedding service was over, the minister, the priest, asked that everybody together should say the whole Lord's Prayer together. 
And that's what they did. And of course, they got to the end and one half of the congregation stopped. Those from the Irish Catholic background stopped. And the other half of the congregation from a Northern Ireland Protestant upbringing, they all carried on and said this addendum. And all the people, he said, he found it so funny, all the people on his right side of the church were all looking at each other and looking over and saying, where did they get that extra bit from? So it's an amusing story. But the important thing I I just want to draw out of it is, in my estimation, it actually should be included. And the reason it should be included is because it fits totally in what Jesus is teaching here about us and how we should pray in this way. Because the whole purpose of the Lord's Prayer was to bring glory to God's name, to hallow his name. We pray your kingdom come. We pray that God's power is available for us to have the victory over sin, past, present, future. And the power even to be delivered from temptations in the future. And it's at, towards its end, it's saying, look, where do you get that power from? Well, it's from him. It's from God himself. It's actually his power. So what we are praying for during this prayer is that his power should be given to us to overcome temptation. And by ending the prayer with this amazing closing statement, it demonstrates that the power available for us is God's power. God's power to do these things that we've been asking for. So again, Jesus is wrapping it up by telling us it's all about having the correct attitude and the correct attitude in how we should approach the Lord in our prayers. Which is why Jesus concludes this section by saying, you've got to forgive people who trespass against you and thereby your heavenly Father can forgive you. And if you don't forgive people that trespass against you, neither will your Father be able to forgive your trespasses. Now, don't misunderstand this. It does not mean that if you have an unforgiving spirit and you hold on to the wrongs perpetrated against you, that you're not going to be forgiven. That's not what it says. Does it mean that we're not forgiven? Does it mean that we're still going to go to hell if we don't forgive the sins of others? Now again, theologians have grappled with this for 2,000 years and the, the consensus that they come up with is what's going on here is recognizing that there's a difference between what is called judicial forgiveness and paternal forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness is that which Jesus Christ earned for us. We were judicially forgiven the moment we became a, a child of God by trusting in him and all our sins are forgiven. All our sins are forgiven and we immediately become a member of God's family. But of course, just because that has happened, it does not mean that we still will not sin again, even after we've become a member of God's family. Of course we do. We'll still mess up. We will still need to receive the ongoing forgiveness on those occasions. And we may indeed miss the mark in the future. But the whole point is that this is what Jesus came to deal with. That's the good news of the gospel. You will still need to be forgiven. But that sin in your life has no judicial power over you. That transaction is taking place and God does not view it as a sin that in any way damages his love or forgiveness of you. But it is best that you confess your sins so that you can live the sort of life that God wants you to live. In fact, 1 John 
Chapter 1, verse 19 tells us, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you see, it's still possible to be a member of the family, and but still hold on to an unforgiving spirit. But what Jesus is saying, if you... If you do that, don't expect God to be able to answer your prayers when it comes to receiving all the blessing that you might have experienced, that he might have wanted you to experience in your life. This has nothing to do with receiving judicial forgiveness. That was given to you as a gift. This is just about understanding that your whole prayer life needs to be prayed with the right attitude, and that begins with our Father, And that should end with our Father, because that says, I have got a relationship with my God as Father. And because of faith in Jesus Christ, I can be forgiven from the power of sin, providing we keep ongoingly coming to him and confessing when we fall short. Then we can say, I'm in fellowship with God the Father. And because of that, by nature, I need to forgive everybody else in God's family. And again, it comes down to having the right attitude. All right, how are we doing? Do you think we've got it all covered? In summary, this passage said there's a wrong way to pray. There's a wrong way to pray, and we covered that a couple of days ago, and that was doing it like the hypocrites, doing it with the motivation to be seen by other people. Then it has taught us the right way to pray. And the right way to pray is to put God first, place him at the center as father and pray for him in his person, pray for his program, his plan for our life and for his purpose. Then we are to pray for ourselves and we are to pray for our provision and for our pardon and for our protection. And if you do that, it'll pretty much change your life. I've got one more thing to say and then I'm going to read a letter to you. But before I do that, I just want to say, in everything I've said so far, I've kind of made an assumption. Do you know what that assumption was? My assumption is that you are already praying. Now, maybe I've made a wrong assumption by saying that. Well, if you're not doing that, then start doing that and start doing that today. And Jesus, in this disciple's prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, is giving us a great model, a great template upon which we can build a meaningful, powerful prayer life. So I'd like to end by reading you a letter of sorts. Now, it's something that is attributed, I've seen it attributed to an American radio journalist called Paul Harvey, who from many, many years ago, but I can't confirm that. I found it on a Pinterest board and I've heavily adapted it so it fits the age in which we live. Anyway, I think the spirit of this letter says it all in a way much better than I could have said it. And I'll just close by reading this letter, which is called A Letter from a Friend About Prayer. When you got up this morning, I watched you and I hoped you would talk to me. Even it was just a few words, maybe asking my opinion or thanking me for something good that had happened in your life. But I noticed you were too busy trying to decide what to wear. You just rushed around the house getting ready. I hoped there would be a few minutes for you to stop and say hello at some point, but you were too busy. At one point, you did have to wait 15 minutes for a bus, but instead you browsed online on your phone for an item that you thought you needed. At work, there were times when you did nothing except sit in the chair and gaze out the window. 
Then I saw you spring to your feet at one point and I thought you wanted to talk to me. But instead you picked up a phone and called your friend to get the latest gossip. I watched you patiently all day. I watched you do all your activities. I guess you were too busy to say anything to me. I noticed it before lunch that you looked around and I thought you were going to talk to me. But maybe you felt too embarrassed to talk to me and that's why you didn't bow your head. You still didn't even talk to me briefly just before you left. But you didn't and that's okay because there's still more time left and I hoped you would talk to me later. But when you got home it seemed you'd have a lot of things to do. But after you'd done them you sat down and I thought I'm ready to listen to you now. But you turned on the TV. Now I know you don't even like some of the things you watch, but you still seem to spend a lot of time of day in front of it, not really thinking about anything, just passing the time. You didn't even stop to talk to me when the adverts came on. I waited patiently again as you watched your TV and you ate your supper before bed, but again you didn't talk to me. Bedtime, I thought. You might speak to me now. But I guess you were just too tired. You went straight to sleep. You didn't even thank me for the fact that your family were all okay today. You flopped into bed and fell asleep in no time. But that's okay. Because you may not realise it, but I'm always there for you, watching over you and protecting you and everyone you love. I'm patient. More patient than you will ever know. I even want to teach you how to be patient with other people as well. I love you so much that I wait every day for a prayer, a thought, a signal that you are thankful to have me in your life. But you know what? It's really hard to have a one-sided conversation. Well, it's another day and you'll be getting up again. And you know I want nothing more for you this day but to love you. I have nothing but love for you and I hope that today you will give some time for me. Have a blessed day, your father and your friend. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus replied, This then is how you should pray. Okay folks, there we are. That's us finished, that section. We'll be launching off in a couple of days when we'll be looking at this next instruction for righteousness, if you like. We've looked at giving, we've looked at praying, and now we're going to look at fasting and see what Jesus teaches us about that. If you are benefiting from this, and I trust you are, then why not consider taking a moment to share a link on social media so more and more people can be brought into the orbit of the teachings of the Bible and maybe they might be led to make a decision to make the study of it part of the rhythm of their daily lives also. If you are here and very new to this it's worth mentioning that there's always a transcript of everything I say available in the episode notes of the podcast. 
All of my resources and materials, including the transit, are always available copyright free, free of charge and in the public domain for you to use in whatever way you want. And you'll find it on the place where the podcast is hosted, which is the Bible Project on Buzzsprout.com, or you should be able to access it through the links wherever you happen to be grabbing your podcasts from, whichever podcast host that you're using. And within the episode descriptions and notes, you'll find links to things like the Facebook page, the YouTube channel, even my own personal LinkedIn page and Patreon accounts, where you can access more formal, structured discipleship type training courses. But the main thing I want to say in closing off is just thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for making the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily lives. And I do hope, God willing, that he gives me and you the time together over the next number of years to do this and work through the entire canon of scripture together. What a blessing that will be for all of us, I'm sure. But that's it for now. I'll see you back here tomorrow, I trust, on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.